0: Welcome to the LeaderThink Podcast, where we discuss personal growth and concepts for improving organizational culture. This is your host, Philip Gryson. As you increase your wisdom, I hope you enlighten others on your path towards greatness. If you want to go further, head over to LeaderThink.com. Hey, everybody. Today, we have a very special guest, Victor Saldana one of the senior safety managers and trainers for Brassfield and Gory. I've known Victor for a number of years now, and he has a deep embrace of effective leadership traits, but he also has a deep awareness of the Hispanic culture. Today, we're going to dive into both of those concepts and how they apply to safety management. So, Victor, would you like to tell everybody who you are, who
1: you work for? Yeah, of course. So, <clears throat> again, my name is Victor Saldana, and one of the senior safety managers here at Brass Gori, I've been very fortunate to have been with a company out of the Atlanta office for the last 10 years now. And, um, and I'll tell you, my job is to simply try to do my best to bridge the gap between two cultures, and particularly in the in the work field, and um, safety. Uh, just understanding that, you know, the amount of folks that we have out there that speak Spanish is tremendous. And um They're not getting great communication to know what it is that they need to take care of and make sure they make it through the day and and back home safely to their families and to whatever their life looks like outside of the job. That's what we're here for. That's what I'm here for.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I love your attitude, Victor. Um, You know, I I talk about you often in classes. I was actually mentioning you in a, a class I had this week because you always stand out to me as somebody who's really forward thinking and always trying to grow, always trying to do more to help our community. So I appreciate all those things that you do for us. Um, you, you really are helping make our, our construction safety world a better place. Um, Victor, obviously leadership is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today. And, and that always stands out about you. I know you really embrace those effective leadership concepts. There usually is this moment in people's lives Where they start embracing that, you know, we're not really just born with those kind of skills, but there there seems to be this moment in life where people, some people, develop a deep passion for effective leadership traits, learning more about it, trying them out, and those sorts of things. Was there a moment like that for you? And if so, what was it?
1: And so, I would say it's kind of hard to pinpoint one moment. Uh, if not more like a series of events that kind of thrusted me forward uh, to kind of answer the bell, and that 's just it. I think we all at some point in our lives have that bell rung where the calling for leadership is there, and whether or not we answer it, it obviously determines whether or not you dive into it you know it 's totally up to you, uh, but for me, I think it was you know uh, as i 've gotten older over the years now at the age of forty one and and seeing Um, I'm originally from Texas. And so we lost, uh, you know, I lost my grandmothers. So they were matriarchs of each side of the family. And then not too long ago, we lost a patriarch on my dad's side of the family. And so there's sometimes comes things in your life that um, are moments that, you know, kind of define and say, you know, are highlighted and say, you know, am I going to step up to this? And if if so, what's your approach going to be to that um, in terms of just kind of growing? Uh, from generation to generation, how you're gonna how are you gonna look out for not just yourself but your families, your loved ones, your community. And in the process, in that journey, how do we sharpen our skills? And if you're willing to step up to the plate of uh, leadership, um leadership is super dynamic, but it makes up for a lot of areas where we may lack uh money, resources, uh knowledge, so on and so forth. So uh I, I love just how dynamic leadership can be.
0: You know, you, you mentioned um, the calling, and I totally relate to that. That there's what we do at work. There's what we get paid to do. But then there seems to be that moment that beyond who we work for, or how we get money, it's that purpose in our life, right? What What is our purpose here on this planet? And, and that calling, uh, it's it's your purpose, right? And and so were you really kind of finding out what your purpose was to be here on this rock?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I think whether you find out what your purpose is early on in life, in your teens, in your 20s, and some people don't, you know, finally get to know what it is until they're up in their 40s, 50s. But when you finally do have that uh, sense of knowing and, and, and knowledge of it, uh, how can you use that to really, if anything, just add value to folks around you? you know, uh, being here to, to, to be a service versus to be a giver versus a taker, you know?
0: So Victor, there's all these different leadership authors, leadership gurus, and different people relate to different styles. Who's your favorite leadership author and what is it about them that inspires you to do more?
1: So I would say that, um, so this guy's pretty popular amongst a lot of leadership leaders out there. Uh, John C. Maxwell has just got a lot of great material. And one of the biggest reasons why he's one of my favorites, is really more so because of his body of work. uh, Because he's, you know, over his lifespan, a good portion of his life has been dedicated to being a student of leadership. So we're talking about things that have been tested, tried and true. And because he's a student of it, he goes back and he reevaluates and he tweaks it, and it's not just all coming from him. He looks to many different industries and walks of life to get his information, from political to sports to religion, and it's an all-encompassing thing. And I would say you could even divide John C. Maxwell in, in different sections of just portions of, uh, of his life. You know, there was the young Johnson Maxwell, which was great, but I'm gonna. I I tap in a little bit more to the older just because now he's got the gray hair and now he's got more experience and he's obviously had time to go back and revisit everything that he's taught. And uh, I I find that to be awesome because, man, if I'm at mile marker number 10, he's at mile marker number 40. You know what I'm saying? And so you got to appreciate that experience and that time he's invested to it.
0: Yeah, you threw a lot of nuggets at me there. Um, you know, obviously, I love Maxwell as well, and and uh, and you and I have talked about our admiration for him. You know, you said something too about the path he's been on, how he's always been a student, and that's true. I think of one time I was hearing him speak, and he said, um, people were giving him compliments about um, the fact that his original new uh, the first books he wrote were very short and sweet you know any any topic he was covering was a, a paragraph or two and, and i remember him jokingly saying that well that's because i ran out of steam and then later on you know some little section where he had a paragraph on personal growth and he's got a whole novel on it but you know i think it reflects that that part that constant intentional commitment to personal growth and he's always saying that, isn't he? He's he's telling the world that I'm always learning, I'm always growing, and then he he throws out his growth in front of everybody, which is the complete opposite of the egotistic "I know it all" type of attitude, right? He he shows us that growth path, so that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. So no, what I was just going to say is that I, I can I can tell you from a professional life standpoint that man, I've gone many days where. Uh, one of his principles or things that he has taught has not applied to what I do. I mean, and that's just another way. I mean, if you want to know if you're, you know, uh, learning from the best or get some great information, put, put it to test, put it to practice and find out for yourself. And I can tell you uh, for one, um, like I said, there hasn't been uh, a day that's gone by here recently that I've not used one of his principles some, some way or somehow.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, we, we do have to, um, see the concepts at play in the world, don't we? Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking about that this week to to someone about process mapping, where you can read something in a book, but you have to take a little time to meditate on the concept, see it at play in the world, try it out for yourself to really get it to sink in. Yeah, those are great. Well, you know, since you're a growth-minded guy, what are you learning about right now that you think I should be learning about?
1: Oh man! Well, there's um, so you know, on the topic of leadership. There's several uh, authors out there, and you know, talking about actually putting stuff into practice. It's something that kind of caught my eye, garnered my attention a little while back. Um, if many of you guys know who Malcolm Gladwell is, he's a speaker and he's a a public speaker and author. And he uh, a few years back wrote a book, The Outliers, and basically, The Outliers is he he examines the factors that contribute to high levels of success. And in that, he repeatedly mentions that whole 10,000-hour rule, which basically is him claiming that to achieve world-class expertise in any skill is to do a large extent of that uh, in a matter of practicing that the correct way for a total of around 10,000 hours, okay? Now, this this claim has been disputed by several others and fairly, right? Most of a a lot of stuff that we put out there gets disputed and tested and so on. But um, I couldn't help but think to myself, man, 10,000 hours. okay, well, why not? So what do I do in my professional life where I can maybe apply that? So when there's an opportunity to stand in front of a crowd, whether it's an orientation or an audit or teaching a class or maybe even being part of this podcast, it's me stepping out of my comfort zone. And in order for, for me to grow, because people cannot grow without being tested and, and, and going through some sort of tension, right? And so in my mind, I'm saying to myself, let me put 10,000 hours towards that tension, towards that testing. And then maybe at the end of that or around those 10,000 hours, um, I'll be uh, a polished, a, a well-polished safety professional or whatever it is that um, I'm looking to, to strive for. And uh, I mean, I'm not so much hung up on that, but I feel that that's that's a pretty lofty goal. I think it's pretty cool. And I can see a lot of, um, without diving into the science, I see a lot of benefits to that. Yeah, yeah,
0: Victor, you know, um, the context of the statement is right, whether it's 10,000 hours or 10, um, the only way to really get good at something is to go out there and do it and screw up a little bit, right? Um, Yeah. There's a lot of people that I meet that want to perfect what they're going to do before they go do it. But I think you're talking about the the truth is, is we have to go out there and do things, get, like you said, get out of our comfort zone and go do those things, knowing we're not going to always deliver the A plus result, but maybe 10,000 hours later we do,
1: right? But that's what it takes, isn't it? It's stepping into the fray. As a matter of fact, so I'm a big collegiate guy. I love college football, and I'm a big Georgia uh, football fan. And Kirby Smart, um, I heard mentioned the other day that uh, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. Now, that quote, I think he may have gotten from, I want to say it's Fred DeVito. Um, But I thought that was cool. That was yet another thing there that kind of caught my attention. And sure enough, I mean, there's a lot of truth in that statement where, it doesn't challenge you it doesn't change you so that's just peace on us stepping out of our comfort zone
0: that's right that's right that's right you know i was uh, reading i was reading or listening to something the other day and it was this experiment where they made a biodome and they had trees growing in this biodome and once the trees reached a certain height they kept falling over and they couldn't figure out why the trees were falling over And then they figured it out. There was no wind in the biodome, and it was that resistance of the wind pushing on the trees that strengthened them, right? And without that resistance, the trees were weak. So that's it, isn't it? We've we've got to go out there and and experience that resistance to get the the strength to not fall over, right? Yeah, for sure. No, I like that. That's pretty cool. So where do you see our industry headed as far as actually? developing people with effective leadership traits as far as safety management is concerned. And if there's anything Brassfield specifically is doing, feel free to talk about that as well.
1: Yeah. So I would say, I think the biggest thing that's going on right now is that there's like a changing of the guard, so to speak, in terms of generations. And so we have to have that presence of mind. And what we're doing is uh, leveraging the pairing of young, bright talent with seasoned vets. And I'm actually speaking more about like uh, superintendents because for as much as our positions are very important when it comes to um, just how we lead our teams and projects in safety, it the example almost squarely falls on the shoulders of the superintendents because they are the captains of the ship. And so I know that that's like a starting point for what our, our safety looks like on our, uh, our projects. We as a safety department, though, um, we're being very intentional about providing great support and doing the legwork when it comes to all the innovative resources that we have available. Because those guys, they have their minds on uh, other things they need to worry about. So we need to take care of the other end where we're coming up alongside them to almost complement their leadership, uh, complement their style, and, and try to be as fluid as they integrate safety into their whole process. Of managing their project,
0: you mentioned younger generations coming in. Do you feel like younger generations better embrace effective leadership than older generations?
1: You know, I don't know if they so much embrace it more so than they uh, can at least appreciate. I can tell you they they can definitely appreciate it, and um, but man, they're in a great position they're in a prime position. I feel the young folks in our industry nowadays, because I can give you this analogy real quick. Going back to the sports side, you know, collegiate or pro when it comes to football, if you've paid attention, you've noticed that there's some freshmen uh, playing in such a way that they're knocking on the door, possibly getting a Heisman trophy. Now the odds of them actually getting a Heisman trophy are very slim because you're going to get those two juniors, seniors, right? But then On the pro level, like NFL, you've got rookies that are setting records, breaking records. And so what do you attribute that to? Is it that they're that much more better than the yesteryear, you know, Johnny Unitas and Joe Montanas of the world? Or is it that all the resources they now have available from just trimming the fat when it comes to approach and nutrition and videos and work ethic and all these things that now combine to help an individual out. In this case, I'm speaking about an athlete, but as a professional, you know, um, it's it's kind of cut into the chase and, and get to the heart of the matter. And if you can recognize that for what it is, man, you're in a prime position to advance. So yeah, we've got some seasoned vets that have a, a, a world of experience. And then we have some younger guys. So I, I, I would advise the younger uh, generation is just pay a little bit of patience, and 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 stick to it, and there's no reason why they can get up to speed very quickly.
0: Yeah, you make a really good point uh, about that. That there are there's more awareness today. We know so much more today than we used to, and and that does provide more resources to folks that we didn't have before. A lot of times, I'm I'm teaching leadership, and I meet a lot of people that are resistant to talking about effective leadership traits. Do you have any thoughts on why that is, Of why some people seem resistant to even having a discussion about it, and maybe any ideas on that, to help manage that
1: issue? So I would say that you have to be, one, that's got to be careful to think that they've actually arrived. Um, I think what happens is that sometimes we fall into this comfort zone, and um, that comfort zone can be, can be dangerous uh, because that's where you get stagnant. Uh, that's where you could possibly become obsolete. You get passed by. And so um, I don't want to call that an old mentality, but it's uh, almost a comfort mentality that that can be very dangerous if you're not paying attention to your own personal growth, just keeping your head on the swivel, being on your toes. Like we've mentioned before, um, you've got to remain a student of of our industry. And uh, if you're not diving into the leadership, then you're really doing yourself an injustice. You really are.
0: That is an excellent point. Uh, And I've seen that same behavior in myself, where if I don't keep growing, next thing you know, I'm I'm devolving into old behavioral patterns. Yes, the comfort zone can be very detrimental to your growth. Yeah, that's right. We got to keep the resistance going, don't we?
1: Yeah, you know, there's I'll tell you, you know, I spent several years doing what we do and and we built up some great relationships. And there's a lot of just genuine passion and love behind those relationships. And sometimes what you'll have is uh, maybe a person or a group of people that says, well, by gosh, if Joe did it that way, that's the way I'm going to do it. You know, and they kind of get a little stubborn behind that. So, In other words, you just got to be careful in the sense that. um Let's go back to a, another speaker. Um I, I, what comes to mind is uh Simon Sinek talking about your finite versus infinite. You cannot think that we're in this finite uh game when we're we're living our lives are or really or at least until you know uh the man upstairs calls us to, to go home or whatever the case is, it's it's almost infinite. So be careful not to corner yourself in the spot that's tough.
0: So Victor. In leadership, we talk a lot about how failure is a teacher, failure is a friend of yours, and not to fear failure. Can you tell me about a past failure of yours that you turned into a success over the long run?
1: Sure. So I would say that it, maybe it wasn't so much a failure, but just a realization of um, a formula or a process that's worked with us on a certain project in the past. Um, and realizing that that same formula just because you had success on one project doesn't translate to the next project and um and a lot of that just comes from understanding that my gosh, there's a different group of people you're working with now uh, there's a different variety of who knows what else that 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 uh, come in and to play with the way management works out on the newer project and so. I think the realization of that, maybe in some sense, you know, it was a failure that brought that to my attention, right? Where I was trying something that I thought was successful in the past, ended up failing. And just really what I learned from that is that, you know, it is true that you have to maybe sometimes customize your approach and change up the recipe, so to speak, so you can have a favorable outcome
0: yeah totally true that especially with dynamic human beings and then in your world where every job site is a whole new collection of dynamic human beings yeah there's not a one-size-fits-all approach is there
1: no there isn't i mean just you know for as much as we like to talk about us being uh just a uniform one culture company and i understand the talk behind that and we uh, you know, I know of several companies that really strive to do their best to just have that one company mentality, and um, and I know that's true for us too, but each individual project is its own representation of who we are. and so um, that's why those lines of communication are super important so we can uh, carry our culture along with all our projects. And I think a true sign of that would be. You know, in our case, us being a general contractor, when you speak to our subcontractors, um, they 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 have a good. Um, I feel like they have a good understanding of what we're all about, what our culture is all about, and how we're there to support them as best we can, so we can again have a favorable outcome.
0: Yeah, they they do, and and you guys do. You reach out not just to your subs, but also your your community, and and that's always been an admirable thing about about Brassfield for sure. So um Victor, you know that I was born in in Washington State and lived in eastern Washington and surrounded by Hispanics. So I had a a, a big introduction to the Hispanic culture there and obviously spent some time in Mexico since my father married someone down there. Um, And that's one of the reasons I brought you here today. I wanted to talk to you about dealing with the Hispanic culture and unique issues that we might run into as far as safety performance. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and why you're so familiar with the Hispanic culture and uh, the Southeastern cultures that we have in construction?
1: Yeah, of course. Well, for starters, um, so I'm Mexican-American. I was born in Houston, Texas back in 1979, (laughs) and then in 1986, we moved to Atlanta, so I was young, and, uh, you know, Spanish was my first language, but, you know, diving into the uh, educational system here, obviously, from kindergarten up, uh, English became, moved as my number one, and so, um, but growing in the Southeast, uh, it's allowed me to just, you know, uh, learn a... Quite a bit of just the history here, uh, the culture, the approach to just work ethic behind a, a lot of what we do here in the Southeast and um, very fortunate, very ha- happy and glad that I can, that I'm not just one that I grew up here, but now that I'm raising my own family here. So, And then, um, you know, using that uh, background that I have, at my Spanish background, and using it for the, the greater good of the community again, for bridging the gap between two cultures. And that's what I bring to the table with our, with our group.
0: You know, sometimes you talk about how Hispanic cultures have existed longer in different areas of this country. And, and, you know, like in Washington, it was just already there when I was growing up. But in, when I moved to Georgia in the eighties, it it wasn't here. And then, and then it developed over time. Um. That, that kind of puts us in a unique spot, doesn't it? That we don't have that it didn't exist for generations here. It still has a newness to it that I think we're all still learning about. Would, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. As a matter of fact, um, I'll share a quick story with you. So a few years back, one of my um, my seniors came to me and said, Hey Vic, so I'm gonna need you to knock out some training out there in Tucson, Arizona. And um and I thought to myself, okay, cool, no problem. And he showed me a roster of names. And when I was reading the names, I saw the Spanish last names. And I just looked over at him and I said, oh, okay, so you're gonna need me to do some Spanish training. And he looked back at me, he's like, no, actually they all speak English. I'm like, <laughs> what? And so I was like, but hang on a sec." So what, what? it quickly hit me that I'm not dealing with the, the first generation, so to speak, here in the Southeast. Now I'm dealing with a group of folks out on the other side of the Mississippi. And, 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 and more fairly, I should say, West of the borderline between Texas and Louisiana, you go west from that point on, you've got generations. You got generations of, of uh, Hispanics over there. And obviously it's pretty heavy from the Mexican side because uh, Mexico, those states in the Southwest uh, used to be part of Mexico. And uh, of course now it's, it's, it's a little more diverse in that uh, you have a combination of uh, a lot of Central American and the rest of Latin America that, that are living in those areas. But anyways, long story short, um, you know, it, w- when it comes to profiling, uh, we all have need to be careful, right? But I can tell you from my vantage point, my standpoint as a Hispanic, that when you see a Hispanic here in the southeast and you speak to them in Spanish, nine times out of ten, they're going to speak right back to you in Spanish. But out further west, you see somebody who you think is Hispanic, um, it, it's more likely that they're going to speak to you in English first. And then you got to find out if they speak Spanish. And oh, by the way, there's, you know, some people that you think might look Hispanic. And it turns out that they're like Navajo Indian or something. They're Native Americans from the U.S. versus Native Americans from Mexico. So, you know, his name is George and he doesn't speak any Spanish at all. And you're like apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry. So um, so I thought that was very interesting, but uh, that just kind of feeds and just kind of into uh, just the understanding of what we know today, just the generations. And the regions of our country are very diverse and different, and and it's pretty neat, pretty cool. uh, But it's one that's important to recognize.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you are so right that um, I remember starting in the construction safety industry and, and a person telling me that you had to be careful to separate the Hispanics from the Cubans or Puerto Ricans, I forget exactly which one it is, it was at the time, but there are different cultures out there that may speak the Spanish language, just like we have different cultures that speak the English language. Could you talk a little bit about some misconceptions maybe of the difference between Latino and Hispanic?
1: Yeah, so misconception is it's pretty, it's, um, it's a unique thing, because like, what well, we were just talking about regional and generational and all that, Um, Let me first start start off by telling you the difference between Latino and Hispanic um, to kind of shed some light on this. So um, with Hispanics, to call a person Hispanic is a person that actually speaks Spanish versus Latino is more a little more all encompassing to the Latin Americas or the countries that speak a Latin language. And those Latin languages, if I'm not mistaken, are you got Spanish, French, uh, Italian, Portuguese. So that's why uh, Portuguese is spoken over in in Brazil, and they're considered as Latinos as well, but they don't speak Spanish, so they're not Hispanic. The Hispanic is going to be someone who speaks Spanish. In this case, it would be Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Ecuadorian, Colombian, Mexican, uh, El Salvadorian. So. Um, that kind of sheds a little light on that, but that's the difference. So to use the term Latin American is fine, but just realize it's a little more all encompassing. But if you want to be more specific, then you're going to say Hispanic to a person that actually speaks Spanish.
0: Um, So we, we talked a little bit about how each job site is unique and individual people are unique, but I'm going to go back to that wide angle view for a minute. Can you talk about some differences between the Hispanic culture and southeastern culture that's been here for generations as far as how it relates to safety management
1: well the two cultures are very different and very unique in their own right and i think uh, maybe some of the things that we run into that could be a bit of a uh, obstruction when it comes to just the flow of work or management is just uh one the the the, the easiest one to know is that is the language barrier that's the easiest But I think sometimes some of the things that we overlook is uh, mannerisms, body language, uh, lack of eye contact, things of that. Um, And so, you know, a person who is Hispanic working out in the construction field, if if they're communicated to do something that's um, out of their scope or something they're not, uh, you know, comprehending very well, their, their mate their body language may give off the wrong signs and and what'll eventually happen or well, what could happen is that's going to just be a, a miscommunication uh, and so it's it's very important that if if at all possible um, you know having that uh, competent person who's maybe bilingual that can bridge a gap in that communication to help alleviate or help uh, avoid any any misunderstanding from the very beginning but You know, there are situations where you'll see that um, somebody maybe gave off the wrong impression without meaning to, uh, all because their mannerism or their body language didn't speak to what the management wanted to to know or hear or understand.
0: You know, that's a great example that um, when we go to different parts of the world, if I look down at the floor and I'm in Asia, I'm showing you respect, but I might be perceived as a shady character if I don't look you straight in the eye down here in the southeast, right? And that knowing that body language does matter, doesn't it? Can you give any any examples of that, Victor? Some some body language things like that that we could pay attention to to be more aware.
1: Um, you know. I think the one that comes to my mind is just uh, those moments where you see the lack of eye contact. That's kind of the one that I kind of lean back on. Um, you know, we have grown up over the years, and and when you have when you communicate with somebody, you're always you've always been told to make that eye contact, right, uh, for out of respect. Um, whereas you may have a, a laborer or an employer worker who's Hispanic that uh, maybe out of show of respect doesn't make that direct eye contact. And, you know, and I got to be careful with what the way I I, I speak of that because that could be a regional thing. You know, it's hard to speak for the whole culture, the whole community. Um, One thing that I was wanting to mention just a few minutes ago that I forgot to mention is just, you know, the differences between the Cubans and the Mexicans and the Puerto Ricans and so on and so forth. Um, You know, many might already understand this, that, um, yes, these are... uh, Spanish speaking uh, countries and people, but they have different ways of commun- communicating certain words depending on what it is that they're trying to convey. Um, much like, you know, somebody from California who speaks very differently from somebody from England or somebody from Canada who speaks very different uh, English from somebody down south in the Southeast. And so you have the same situation with uh, the Latin American or Hispanic countries in South America, and in uh, Mexico, Central America.
0: Good deal, good deal. Well, now I'm going to look out for that more often. <laughs> um, you know, Victor, in my world, the thing I see the most is I have this normal scenario where someone calls up and they say they need a certain kind of safety training. And just due to our culture today, I always mention that, hey, I, I speak English And then I usually hear, I hear this statement a lot from clients. We have Spanish speaking people, but they understand. And and, you know what they're meaning is that they understand English. And so, and I'll always just try to reiterate like rigging uh, classes. This comes up a lot because there's math and things like that on the test. And, And I'll say, well, okay, well, can they, do they know it well enough to pass a test on math in English. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I'll get to the classroom and I'll do that same thing. I'll say, hey, you know, we I, we're, this test is in English. If If nobody feels comfortable taking a test in English, we can get you a Spanish trainer and all that. And then they sit through the class all day and then still it never fails at the end of the day. I've got a portion of the class that clearly does not comprehend written English. And, you know, one, I'm wondering, what do we do with that to make that better? But two, why do their employers have that misperception in the in the first place? Why do they perceive that their, their employees who speak Spanish and English do know it well enough to pass a test in English But then I'm finding out, meeting them for the first time, that they don't.
1: Man, well, I think it starts at the top. It does start with management and the leadership there and their priorities. And so, um, without a doubt, one of their priorities is to get some training. But what level of quality training? You know what I'm saying? And so we have to be very careful not to have that check-a-box mentality. Where in their mind, hey, we're going to have training. Well, let's get them in there at all cars. Well, they may not speak perfect English. Well, it doesn't matter. They understand a little bit. And it's like for the sake of getting that box checked, they're like, just, you know, put them in there. Kind of like, you know, Subway, like, hey, man, we don't have much room. No, no, no. Let's show everybody in there <laughs> for the sake of just getting it done. And so, but if a true leader is going to have the presence of mind to recognize that, that's got to be something that they they, they are informed of prior to in their, in their preparation or their planning for whatever training they're going to receive is to have the presence of mind and say, hey, you know what? Um, yeah, we're going to need this training, but are we going to have to do this in two days where we do the first one in English and the second one in Spanish? And sometimes their schedule doesn't even allow for that, even for one day, much less two days. And so I think there is a little bit of that, hey, let's just get them all in while we can and uh, and rock and roll with that. But we cannot we cannot afford to to cut that corner and try to take the easy way out in that sense. And if you have the presence, of mind actually say, you know what, let's 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 see if whoever's providing this training that they can also bring in somebody that's bilingual or somebody that can teach a class in Spanish. They're going to be better off uh, because, man, when it comes down to it, heaven forbid something happens that uh, somebody got hurt, and one of the things that OSHA will look at is is training. And not just uh, any training, but the quality of it, and who did it, and so on and so forth. And was there understanding, or was there not? And uh, once they start diving into that, and come to find out that uh, that quality wasn't there, then uh, there's going to be some crazy, you know, some crazy questions that you- people are going to have a rough time answering. So.
0: Yeah, you are so right. And, and you know, you, you started that out with the, that check-the-box training mentality that we do still see a lot in construction. Um, you, you know, it's one thing with Brassfield and Gory that I've always seen as a strength that a lot of times when you guys, if I am invited to come teach a rigging class for you, the people have already had rigging training and and we're just doing it again to help reinforce the knowledge. And And so that's a... Uh, You you guys are definitely the opposite mentality of that check-the-box training. Another reason I love your your company there. So for those that do want to gain more awareness to understanding Hispanic culture, could you give me any kind of simple phrases that people who don't know Spanish well could start using to communicate better as far as as safety performance goes and managing construction safety?
1: Yeah, man, I could share at least maybe... Three phrases or something like that, and uh but I'll tell you this before I do so is that i I know there's some folks out there that feel this this burden or pressure to try to learn Spanish like man i got I just gotta do it, and i I understand um the um the desire to want to do that, but I'll tell you man, sometimes just learning a few phrases break in the ice just that in itself when you show somebody that you care enough to actually step over the line and you stepped out of your comfort level and that you're actually trying to connect let's go back to john maxwell real quick man where he's got a, uh, a statement that pretty much a quote that i love to hear is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care i love that and you trying to break the eyes or step out of your comfort level to speak to somebody in their language. A lot of times, you know, brings down whatever barrier was, uh, invisible barrier that was between the two. And that allows many things. That allows for great relationship between, you know, manager and employee. Uh, that allows for uh, trust. Uh, it allows for more communication. Uh, it allows for comfort level in the event, you know, the employee is up against something that is Uh, Critical or hazardous, or something that he needs to bring to your attention. And now all of a sudden, you know, regardless of the body language or the language barrier itself, they're going to be more apt to actually come to you uh, seeking some advice or or some help. So, for starters, you got to start with the name, right? Like, hey, como te llamas? Como te llamas? What is your name? Right? And he can say, uh, Mi nombre es Juan. Felipe. Felipe. Okay. So, como te llamas? Felipe. Okay, yo me llamo Victor, yo me llamo, quien es el jefe, who is the boss, right, because if you're a management, a lot of times, like, if you're even questioning or, you know, um, initiating conversation, it's because you're getting ready to try to find, get some information, right, so you, you're probably going to want to go straight to the source, like, quien es el jefe, who, who's the boss, uh, you're trying to figure out who's in charge, right, and then, um, Let's just say that, uh, you know, you're in a situation where, okay, these guys look way off, safety looks super suspect. I mean, these guys are putting themselves, have they even been through our safety orientation? Sometimes, uh, very rarely, but every now and then you might get some folks that kind of squeeze through and didn't even have that initial safety orientation at the beginning of the project. So you've got to be able to ask them, has pasado por la orientación de seguridad? So have you been through the safety orientation? Has passed por the orientation de seguridad. And whether or not they can say yay or nay, see <laughs> si or no, um, obviously can help you determine what, what steps to take from there. So I hope that helps. Oh,
0: definitely. You know, the 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 best nugget too was just making that initial effort to learn something to break the barrier down. You know, and, and that's right, it doesn't even matter if we're an A plus. That speaking Spanish, the fact that we tried, we made a connection, didn't we? We showed we cared. That's, that's great advice. Love it. Well, hey, any other advice for people getting into the safety profession, people that are new to it that you think might uh, help them with the challenges we have in, in safety and managing Hispanic cultures?
1: Man, so over the years, I've, I've, I've been asked this kind of question and more so particularly when I like, say when it comes to Hispanics. Uh, and I say Hispanics, but really this applies to to most everybody. And that's, I've noticed that there's a level of apathy out there that I think affects um, just how much success we have in our profession. And the truth is that we, we got to have more, we got to be a little more empathetic. You, you got to be able to care for the person that's uh, under your uh, your care. And um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, on the subject of just kind of being a student and reading up on leadership and stuff years back, I decided just kind of skim over the art of war, <laughs> uh, which is not an easy read. And I didn't I didn't actually get to finish it, but I saw uh, several things in there that, um, you know, kind of guarded my attention. And Sun Tzu actually had one a statement in there that said, treat your men as you would your own beloved sons and they will follow you into the deepest valley. I thought that's pretty cool. Because he's talking about soldiers, but in our case, in our industry, we're talking about employees, and we're talking about uh, workers. Um, But every day, there's some sort of battle that we're dealing with, and um, the battle for us is, you know, uh, out being in the danger zone, how to keep our men and women safe at all times, and whatever little bit that we can, um, you know, share with the next person to actually add value to them and better equip them for what their tomorrow looks like. better off lobby in the long run
0: so victor i know you've been involved in the georgia hispanic construction association would you mind talking about that for a minute in case somebody listening wants to get more involved in our our hispanic construction culture we have in georgia
1: yeah so you know for as much talk as we had about you know the the hispanic community in the southeast we're very fortunate that there is an entity out there that uh, serves as a great resource uh for those that uh, are in the Hispanic community or wanna do business with folks in the Hispanic community. Um, the Georgia Hispanic Construction Association actually works closely with private, public, and nonprofits to support and promote the inclusion and growth of Hispanic businesses in the construction space. And uh, they also partner with many uh, national entities and, and then um, you know just trying to elevate their voice on a federal level. So that's pretty cool. And uh, if you want more information about that, feel free to reach out to to myself or to Philip.
0: Good deal. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Victor. Any final words before I let you go?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Philip. I appreciate it. Um, just you know, putting in some time to have this conversation. And I would say uh, to those listening, just, you know, I challenge you not to let this be the last time you dive into this conversation and and continue to be a student of what we do uh, just overall with safety and obviously, Uh, Don't forget your brothers and sisters who speak Spanish. Uh, They come alongside you to to help out in any which way, shape, or form they can to to make our industry better and and keeping us safe.
0: If you learned something valuable today, please share it with others. For more information, head over to leaderthink.com.